Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Special Friday edition after both the Celtics and the Bruins were in action. And really, it was two totally different performances, right? You have a Celtics team that you expect to sweep this Atlanta Hawks team, right? At the way it was going, it felt like this series was over. And I still believe the Celtics are going to win. I'm not panicking or anything along those lines. But it was a really embarrassing performance from the Celtics. And then you have this Bruins team that's dealing with all these injuries. Bergeon and Krejci's a late scratch. And we didn't know if Allmark was actually going to start, right? So you had all these issues going into the game from a Bruins perspective. And they showed you why they set the record for the most wins in NHL history, the most points In NHL history, they showed grit. That was a professional win for the Bruins. And on the other side of this, you have the Celtics that just completely lay an egg in Atlanta. So we'll get to the Bs. Let's start with the Celtics because that was the disappointing loss of the night. So the defensive effort in this game was just flat out embarrassing. And with all that being said, the Celtics with 58 seconds left, they had a chance to tie the game at 124-124. And Jason Tatum unfortunately misses a wide open three. And they go down the other end and score. And that's pretty much the game. But as bad as the Celtics played in that game, they were horrible on the defensive side of the floor. They still had a chance to win. That's how big sort of the margin of error is for the Celtics in this matchup against Atlanta. Atlanta is just not a very good basketball team. And the Celtics played as bad as you can possibly play defensively and still almost won the game. Now, the Celtics, they hit 21 threes in this game, 21 threes, and somehow they found a way to lose, right? So before I get into what transpired in the first half, I got to say this. Look, I know Al's been good all season long for the Celtics team, but it did feel like, and they talked about it after the game in the postgame press conference, Joe Mazzulla thought the switching was good. I felt like late in that game, they just had Al Horford out in an island and Trey Young was just cooking them, right? And it just felt like they were targeting Al Horford. I know a couple of those shots are difficult that they were hitting, but they were just going at 
Al. And look, Al can hold up against some wings, but Trey Young is just way too quick for him, right? He was just getting around him, and they tried at times putting, essentially taking Al off of a big guy, putting him on Murray and hoping that that would help from a switching perspective, but it really didn't. And it just feels like when you have Al getting switched on Trey, it's very easy for Trey to get by him. And what happens is the defense is just getting put in a blender, right? Everybody's running all over the place because once Trey Young gets by Al, everybody's going to come over and help. And then he's getting to his floater game or he's finding somebody for an open shot. It just felt like that was really not the way to go late in this game. And I do wonder if there is going to be a change going forward in terms of how they play late in these games. Like maybe you go smaller and just say, you know what? And look, some of these other guys have not held up as ISO defenders this year either, but Al Horford defended the second most isolation possessions this season. And he gave up a 48% effective field goal percentage. That was in the 39th percentile. When you go back to last year, he was elite as an ISO defender, 36.4% in terms of the effective field goal percentage. That was in the 81st percentile. So we're talking about 11.6 percentage points in terms of the difference in that particular category. And it did feel like it was pretty obvious what the Hawks were doing late in the game. They were just going after Trey Young. And I hate to say this about Al Horford because he's had such a great season. He's done such a great job shooting the basketball, but it did feel like he was a liability on the floor late in this game defensively. And after the game, it doesn't feel like they're going to make any changes by what Joe Mazzulla was saying, but I just don't feel like that is a good strategy. Now, I don't feel like we saw earlier in the game, they kept dropping and the Hawks were getting whatever they wanted from an offensive perspective there, but the switching with Al, I just don't think you can go to that late. So whether that means Brogdon plays and you close small, now the issue is the Celtics got killed on the boards as well, but it's not like Al was available to get those rebounds because he's out on Trey anyway. So it's not like having Al off the court is going to cost you rebounds late in the game because he's out on that island with Trey Young anyway. So maybe that means more Grant Williams late in this game, which I thought was one of the real bright spots in terms of what the Celtics did tonight. But it's just something I would look at going forward is I don't think if if it's close, like it may be a blowout in game four, right? And we don't even have to worry about how they're guarding Trey Young late. But if it's a close game late, I just don't think you can go back to that strategy again with switching everything with Al Horford on the court. All right. So let's start why this team was in such a massive hole. The defense was just, and it got a little bit better in the second half, but it was just embarrassing, right? Overall, the Hawks finished with a 127.5 rating, and the Kings led the league this year at just under 119. The Hawks were at 127.5 in this game. And you think about it. In the second half of this game, they did a better job in terms of limiting the points in the paint to 20. But in the first half, they gave up 34 points in the paint, right? Which is just unacceptable. They were on pace for 68 points in the paint. And the Grizzlies, they lead the league at 58. So they were on pace to score 10 more points in the paint than the Grizzlies do this season who lead the NBA. And it felt that way, didn't it? It felt like the Hawks were just getting to the rim at will. And you start to look at those numbers in the first half. They shot 65.2% from the field. They shot 50% from three. And they took 16 shots in the restricted area. That little circle, they hit 12 of them, 75%. OKC leads the league, 31 attempts per game in the restricted area. They were on pace for 32. Washington leads the league, 72% shooting in the restricted area. Atlanta was at 75%. And there's just no excuse for this to happen to the Boston Celtics. They have all the advantages on this Atlanta Hawks team in terms of the size, right? They have elite defenders across the board. There's no reason that Atlanta should take 16 shots in the restricted area in the first half of the game. That's just an effort thing. And I I don't know why 
The Celtics didn't bring the necessary effort in this game. You had a chance to take a commanding 3-0 series lead, and you just don't show up on the defensive side of the floor, right? I mean, you look at the numbers in the first half. The Hawks had a 145.1 offensive rating. 145.1. Again, the Kings led the league just under 119. They had a 145.1 offensive rating. It's just incredible. And here's the thing. The Hawks in the first two games of the series... They had a 100.5 offensive rating, 100.5. That would be last in the NBA by a wide margin. So you held this team to a 100.5 offensive rating. Like you were great defensively through the first two games. And all of a sudden they have a 145.1 offensive rating in this one. That's just effort. I mean, there's no way around it. I don't know why the Celtics were so bad defensively in this game. I just, I don't get it. I mean, you dominated this team on the defensive side of the floor and then you just completely Lay an egg. Now, I will give Quinn Snyder some credit because I do feel like there was an adjustment made by the Hawks in terms of they were doing all this stuff in the first couple of games and they did late. They played through Trey Young, but it was just like slow, methodical. Trey like seeking everything out, trying to do everything. And it felt like Trey was getting off the ball quicker. The Hawks were moving the ball faster. So I do give Quinn Snyder some credit for that, that the actions it felt like they were getting into their offense more quickly than they were in the previous two games. And the Celtics. Let's just call it like it is. They just did not match the Hawks' intensity, right? And I almost feel like, and I referenced the threes, hitting all those threes, 15 in the first half, it felt like that was bad for them in the long run, right? It was almost like they felt like the Celtics did. They were just going to shoot themselves out of the game, right? And I feel like they didn't bring the necessary fight defensively because they didn't need the effort for most of the game to stay in it because they were just raining threes. And look, I still believe the Celtics are going to win the series. But you made it tougher on yourselves, right? And it didn't need to be that way. And I, I really just wonder if they were struggling shooting the three, would they have brought more of an effort from a defensive perspective? Because that's what it felt like to me. It just felt like, oh, yeah, we'll be fine. We're just going to go down the court and hit threes. And unfortunately, the Hawks, they played harder than the Celtics did. Now, here's the thing that aggravates you is, as I alluded to, you make it tougher on yourself, right? And it's going to be more of a challenge on Sunday because these guys have confidence now, the Hawks, right? And look, I, like I said, I'm not panicking. I think the Celtics are going to win. But I just feel like this is something we saw last year as well, where the Celtics make the road a little bit more difficult than it needs to be, right? For example, Sadiq Bey in this game goes for 15. He was 5 of 7 from deep. He had zero points in game two. This guy was a complete non-entity in game two. He was bad in game one as well. So now he has confidence. You look at a guy like Trey Young. We did it the other night. He was absolutely atrocious through the first two games of the series. We outlined it. But tonight, he goes for 32-9, and 9, 12 of 22 from the floor, and he was the best player on the court late in this game where he was just dissecting the Celtics' defense. So he's going to have some confidence. And then I thought DeJounte Murray was really good in this game, and he has been, like, pretty good throughout the series as well. But he has 25 and 11 of 21 shooting, and I felt like what he realized in this game is he's getting to his pull-up two-point game whenever he wants to, right? Like, this guy's not a good three-point shooter, but he's an elite mid-range shooter in terms of pull-up twos. You look at his numbers tonight, three of four on short mid-rangers, four of seven on long mid-rangers. So what, 57.1% on those. And you look at it on the season in terms of his pull-up two-point game, 244 of 498. That's 49%. So he shot 49% on pull-up twos this season. We talk about this a lot with Jalen, but what we saw tonight is he can just stop on a dime and get that shot going. So Again, this is another guy that now has confidence. Not that he didn't before, but Trey Young feels good about himself. Sadiq Bey feels good about himself. DeJounte Murray feels good about himself. And then I would say 
Bogdanovich does as well. He came off the bench and he went six of eight and he was getting by defenders left and right and getting to his pull-up game. So I just think about it from this perspective. You gave them an answer for Trey where they know, hey, if we need a bucket, we can go attack Al or you can go at Hauser. And then Murray feels like, hey, I can beat anybody and get to my spots. Bay is going to be confident. He's going to be bombing threes. And remember, this is a guy that hit 40% of his three-pointers since he was traded over from the Pistons. And look, this is the same thing I come back to with the Celtics. They did this in the playoffs last year as well, right? Where it's like they played extra games because they had these brutal performances. And eventually what we saw, it caught up to them against the Golden State Warriors in the finals where... They were gas, and I'm not saying that's an excuse, but fatigue, go watch the finals again and watch Jason Tatum. He was absolutely exhausted because they had to go through and play all these games that they shouldn't have had to because they had these brutal losses. Now you go back to game five against the Bucks last year, right? Remember this one? You were outscored 33 to 21 in the fourth quarter, and in that fourth quarter, the Celtics gave up seven offensive rebounds in the fourth quarter. Bobby Portis had four. The Bucks in that fourth quarter grabbed 58% of their misses, which is just unheard of in the NBA. And all the Celtics had to do with 14 seconds left. They had a 107-106 lead. Giannis is at the free throw line. He misses the free throw. The Celtics could not corral the rebound. Bobby Portis gets it, puts it back in, makes it 108-107, and eventually the, the Bucks win that game 110-107, to right? So one rebound, you win the game. The Celtics couldn't do it. So again, instead of going up three games to two, and going into Milwaukee with an opportunity to end the series in six, you need Tatum to save your season in game six to have 46 just to come back home and play against the Bucs in game seven. But there's no way that series should have gone seven games, but it's because the Celtics had a loss where it's like they just couldn't get a rebound. They could not get a rebound. You get one free throw rebound, and that series most likely ends at six. You can go to the Miami series. How many bad losses did they have in that one, right? I mean, I think about game one. They had 14 points in the third quarter. 14. 14 points in the Heat scored 39. So just a complete no-show. And Tatum had six turnovers in that third quarter alone. Then you go to game three against Miami. You turn the ball over 23 times, six for Tatum, seven for Jalen, right? And Miami scored 33 points off your turnovers in that game. And just to put that into the proper context, no team averaged more than 20 points off of turnovers last year. They had 33 in that game. Then you go to game six, right? You're figuring, all right, even though you had some bad losses, Celtics are going to win this game six. What happens? They turn the ball over 18 times and Miami scores 23 points off your turnovers. Your best player, Jason Tatum, had seven turnovers in that game. And Jimmy Butler comes into the guard and shuts everybody up, has this tremendous game. So it just felt like you had so many games against Miami where you shot yourself in the foot with turnovers and against the Bucs, it was rebounds, right? And this loss to the Hawks tonight reminded me of the run last year where in this particular case, it was the defense being horrible, right? And you struggled rebounding as well. I mean, the Celtics were completely dominating the glass in this game. What, 48 to 29 in terms of the rebounding? They were horrible rebounding. That issue was a problem last year. The Celtics got the best rebounding team in the NBA this year, and they struggled in that particular category tonight. And just like the postseason losses, it just feels like from last year, it just feels like these are avoidable things. And to just no-show defensively against this Atlanta Hawks team, it's just, you hate to see something like this because it reminds you of like certain losses during the regular season, right? Where it's like, remember that OKC game where OKC scored 150 points and it was just straight line drives to the basket? As I mentioned with those numbers in the restricted area, it was the same thing. But I didn't think that was going to happen to this Celtics team 
in a playoff series. And you would think, especially considering what they went through last year in terms of playing all those extra games and realizing how tired they were against the Golden State Warriors, that that wouldn't happen again this year. And it did in this game on Friday night. And look, we'll see what's going on with Joel Embiid because Woj reported that he's missing game four against Brooklyn. They still may end up sweeping that series. And now Woj did say they're hopeful that he can come back early next week. But this is another reason to get the series over with quickly, right? Like Philadelphia is not going through a difficult series. I know that game was super weird on Thursday night. You had the Harden thing where he got ejected when I thought Embiid should have been the one that got ejected. But nonetheless, the whole point of this is just the fact that you created an extra game for yourself. And just real quickly, one thing that I would change going forward, I would remove Hauser from this rotation against Atlanta because he's getting hunted like crazy by Trey Young. And I do feel like that worked for the Hawks tonight. I felt like in game one, it didn't work. And it didn't really work that much in game two, but it worked tonight. And Hauser's given you nothing offensively, right? He's played 20 minutes. You know how many points he has? Three. He hit one three. That's it. And that was in game two. So he's had two games where he hasn't scored a point. So I think he's useless right now if he's not going to hit shots. And I know that Grant Williams had his issues down the stretch, but he's just a better basketball player than Sam Hauser is, right? He's way better in terms of what he can do defensively. And he can shoot. We know he's a good shooter despite some of the struggles he had when he was talking about the elbow issue and all that. But you look at Grant tonight, his 18 minutes, he has 14 points. It's a perfect four from four for four. And it's another guy where you could go small ball five if you're worried about all this switching. Grant's got a much better chance holding up against Trey Young than Al Horford does, right? And I thought Grant in this game, he was really good. Comes in immediately because of the foul trouble, which is another issue we'll get into. Corner three, 18-14. Then he had a nice steal when they were up 18-14. He had a catch and shoot three. He took a charge on a Kongwu. And you remember, Grant does bring energy to this team when he's playing well. He had an offensive rebound. He got to the line, hit both free throws. He got a corner three when Brogdon drove to the basket. And then he had a nice three at the end of the third quarter that made it 100 to 93 on a feed from Tatum. And then how about he had like one of those Grant plays from last year where it's similar to Marcus Smart, where Smart will just draw a foul out of nowhere. Grant drew a foul on a Kongwu, just like at the top of the key. He just, he sort of flopped. It was a foul in his defense on a Kongwu, but Grant made some really nice plays in this game. He shot the ball well. So I just think from Grant's perspective and Hauser's perspective, Grant's the guy that should be playing now. Like, I don't think there's any reason to go back to Hauser. Just play Grant because we know Grant's going to be a more valuable piece against Philadelphia. And definitely, if you get by Philly, a more valuable piece against Milwaukee and Giannis. We all know the history with Grant and Giannis. All right. And I thought it was a good smart game, right? I mean, smart goes for 24 points in this game, eight assists. He's five of 12 from three point territory. And I do give Quinn Snyder credit. Like I give him credit for some of the adjustments they made offensively. Defensively, what was happening as we talked about the other night is the first couple of games, Clint Capella, their shot blocker, their rim protector, was essentially just glued to Al Horford out on the wing. So what was happening, if you beat your guy off the dribble, there was nobody at the basket, right? So he said tonight, fuck that, we're doing what teams did to Tony Allen in the past and what teams have done more recently to a guy like Russell Westbrook, just let him shoot, right? So Smart ended up hitting shots, as we alluded to, and I think that gave him some confidence, right? I mean, you think about some of the plays he made. He had a steal finish the other way, went coast to coast to make it 79-74, He had some nice plays in terms of his passing. We alluded to the assists. He found White for a wide open three-pointer. And then him and Jalen had that thing going where Jalen had a back cut in transition. This is like something they always do now. Smart finds him, ties the game up at 79. He had a nice drive and a floater to make it 102-101. He had another hard drive, had a floater made it 105-103. 
He drove by Trey, found Al for an easy dunk, found Al for an open three, and then he himself had an open three to make it 124-121. So I thought he was really good. And look, I give Joe Mazzulla credit in this game for being pliable. This is one of the questions we had entering the postseason. Would he be versatile with his rotation late in games? And Brogdon was great in this game, but I was a bit surprised that he went to Brogdon late over Smart because I felt like Smart had the best floor game out of any of the guards, right? So 116-111, he goes to Brogdon, and I just felt like Smart was playing so well. That's a game where I thought, okay, read the situation, read the room, keep Smart in the game, and I thought that was kind of weird. Brogdon did miss that wide-open three. Now, he was great in the game in general, but I thought Smart was really good, not just in terms of the fact that he hit five threes, but the fact that I thought he distributed the ball really well, and I thought he was getting into the lane. Like, we don't ordinarily see that with Smart, and I do think one thing to take away from the series so far I do feel like Smart looks spry, and he looks better defensively than he has in the past, and he looks more athletic than he did most of the season. So maybe that ankle injury was bothering him more than we initially thought. Now, I didn't want to make this like an indictment on Brogdon. I was just surprised they made that switch late because I thought it was a good Brogdon game as well. He had 17 points in his 29 minutes, 7 of 15, 3 of 6 from the floor, and really an interesting wrinkle in this game, he was booed every time he touched the ball because earlier on Friday, he said... As far as the franchise know, when he was asked about if he was a Hawks fan, historically, these fans haven't been the most dedicated, and that's myself included coming up. I was always an NBA fan, but not the Hawks specifically. So I don't think he meant to take a shot at the fans. Like, I don't think he thought he was going to be booed on every possession. But hey, I I don't ordinarily think the Atlanta crowd is great. So I thought it added to the game where he was getting booed every time he touched the ball. I thought that was interesting. Although I don't know why I, I was watching the ESPN broadcast. I don't know why they didn't mention it, that he was getting booed every time and mention the quote. I mean, that felt like something that was pretty obvious. I don't know why they didn't mention that. But anyway, I thought he was good in terms of I thought we saw his value, right, where Jalen was dealing with some foul trouble. Derek White was dealing with some foul trouble. And he comes into the game hard drive right away, find smart for an open three to make it 12-12. He got to his pull up three game, made it 15 to 12. Hard drive found Grant for an open three. Hard drive and and one, although he missed the free throw. A pull-up three to make it 23-19. And I just felt like early in this game, he's the guy that kind of stabilized everything and got the offense going. Had some nice plays late, too. Hit a floater to make it 100-90. Ran the floor. Hit a layup to make it 197. Ran the floor with Jalen. So all in all, I thought, like, if they won this game, a large part of it was going to be because of the pressure that Brogdon put on the defense early on, but it just didn't flip that way, and the Hawks kept getting whatever they wanted from an offensive perspective. Jalen's the guy that I thought was really disappointing from a Celtics perspective. 15 points, and he did it on 15 shots. He got himself in foul trouble, and he got to the free throw line once in this game, right? I mean, he took two free throws, and it's one trip to the free throw line, but he missed that, and I just felt like the fourth foul that he picked up With 6.55 left in the third quarter, there was just no reason for it. Trey Young is coming off a screen at the three-point line. You already ran him off the three-point line, right? Like, so he's going into the paint or trying to get into the paint. There's no reason to follow him there. It's not even like he's about to take a shot or anything along those lines. I just thought it was a careless foul by Jalen. Overall, like, he had some nice plays in this game. Like, hit a nice little floater. He had a nice little, he slipped a screen where Brogdon found him, had some nice cuts in this game overall, but I just felt like this is your second best player. This is a guy that has a chance to make all NBA and he gives you 15 points and he gets in foul trouble. He was careless with the ball at times. I just felt like it was a bad Jalen game in terms of 
Tatum, I thought, was good in this game. I'll get to him in a second, but I just felt like Jalen didn't do nearly enough to help out Tatum in this game and help out the team. Like, he was bad. And then the other guy that I thought, shockingly, was Rob. I, I mean, I can't remember a game where Rob had a more forgettable performance. He had four and five. He had no blocks in 19 minutes. He had no impact in the game whatsoever. And I feel like Rob's one of those guys where when Rob plays, he ordinarily jumps off the screen. And we got none of that in this game tonight. Tatum was good. I know he's just nine of 22, but he had 29. He grabbed 10 rebounds, five more than anybody else. I thought the biggest thing from Tatum's perspective was that his number two, his sidekick, so to speak, and Jalen Brown, he didn't show up. Jalen had a really bad game. Rob was a no-show. Derek White was not particularly good in this game, and he was dealing with foul trouble. And I thought just the lack of effort, and maybe that comes back on Tatum too, where Tatum, there was a play in this game where Tatum just got back cut by DeAndre Hunter, wasn't paying attention whatsoever. So the fact that this team was so loose defensively, Tatum is the leader of this team, right? I know that maybe he's not the most outspoken guy in the world. That's smart. That's Al Horford. And there was a portion of this game or a time in this game where smart was the guy talking to everybody but you can't have that type of effort from your team so maybe if you want to put that on Tatum in terms of just being the leader of the team that's fine but I thought he was good in this game overall I thought the biggest any look he missed that three late that could have easily tied it but overall I thought the biggest issue in this game was the lack of effort from the beginning the fact that Jalen was bad and the fact that Rob had no impact whatsoever now the thing I'll say going forward is I just hope that the Celtics come out with the necessary effort on Sunday. And I think they will, knowing that, hey, Philadelphia is going to have an opportunity to sweep their series. They know that they can't mess around with this team anymore. And these guys now have confidence, and you want to take that away from them if you're the Celtics. So I think they'll come out with the necessary effort on Sunday. But again, I thought they would tonight. And that was just a missed opportunity when you had a chance to sweep your first-round series. It's just unfortunate that the Celtics didn't show up to Atlanta. All right, a lot more to get into. We will get into the bees in just a little bit here, but I do want to get into one other Celtic story, which I think is bad news for the seas going forward. We'll do that next. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Now, I did want to get into one other Celtics-related storyline here. So, if you hadn't heard, Nick Nurse is out in Toronto, okay? And right when this gets tweeted out today, Woj tweets out that Nick Nurse is out, whatever. I tweet out, Eme, question mark. Like, that's that's my thought. Is Eme going to go to Toronto? And then <laughs> the first line of Woj's story, the Toronto Raptors fired coach Nick Nurse on Friday, clearing the way for Eme Adoka to become a serious candidate to replace him. He goes on to say, Yudoka has a long relationship with Masai Ujiri and is expected to be a prominent part of the Raptors coaching search. Okay. Now, Ime, by the way, is also part of the Rockets search along with Frank Vogel. And now it feels like Nick Nurse is already lined up to take over in Houston. They'll probably let him do whatever he wants there, right? He'll be a star, right? He's a star coach. I, I don't know another coach that has like a logo. Like Nick Nurse actually has a logo, right? The only coach I've seen with a logo. But nonetheless, this guy's a really good coach. And I thought... He did a bunch of weird stuff in that series against the Celtics in the bubble a couple of years ago. I kind of gained some respect for him, but obviously it did not go well this past season in Toronto. There were some issues there, and Tillman Fertitta, the owner of the Rockets, I think he's going to look for a star. So I think that he's going to end up 
with the Houston Rockets. And that feels like now Ime is going to get this Toronto job. Now, if you're Ime too, wouldn't you rather have Toronto anyway? The chance of having the number one pick is appealing, like going to a team like Houston or Detroit, right, where you could get Victor Wembanyama. What, what happens if you don't get him, right? Now, I know Scoot Henderson is going to be really good and Brandon Miller, but none of those guys are Wembanyama. I mean, he's the best prospect since LeBron James, right? But when I think about it from Ime's angle on this, this Toronto job makes so much sense for him, right? This is a guy that just got a taste of the NBA Finals. He's probably stewing right now watching this Celtics team, even though they lost to Atlanta tonight. But he's probably stewing watching this team, being like, this is my team. I'm the one that turned him around. I wanted to bring this team back to the NBA Finals. Like, it's probably really irritating him. And look, I don't have, we don't have all the details of what happened with Ime, right? But we know that Ime probably feels wronged by the situation, right? I mean, remember, it was Ime's camp that prior to the season leaked that information out in terms of that he was getting suspended. It didn't behoove the Celtics to do it. We all know the Celtics didn't do it because they hadn't even finished everything up with their lawyers yet, right? And he probably believes that the reason he didn't get the Nets job is because somebody said to the Nets, hey, uh, you know, the Celtics just fired this guy. Maybe you or moved on from him, I should say, whatever the terminology is. Maybe you should wait on the CMA thing. So he's probably pissed at the Celtics for that as well. But just circling back, I don't think Ime wants to go to a place that is a rebuild, right? Yeah, there's a chance you could get Wembenyana, but but there's also a chance you couldn't, right? So that's where I think the Raptors make a lot of sense for Ime because we've heard all this stuff about Masai Ujiri over the years where he takes a lot of chances, right? But let's be real with (laughs) with Masai Ujiri. He made one big trade for Kawhi Leonard, and basically it was DeMar DeRozan and Yaka Pirtle because the Spurs were idiots. They didn't want stuff for the future, so they got like nothing in terms of young assets. I mean, Pirtle's a good player and he's back with the Raptors now. But nonetheless, like anybody would have made that deal if you were running the Raptors, right? I know he gets a lot of credit for that and he's the one that ended up finishing the deal, but anybody would have made that trade considering that Raptors team was never getting over the hump with DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry. So it was a dumb deal for the Spurs. They didn't embrace the tank. It was a very easy trade for Masai. But look, A couple other things you look at, too, in terms of the last few seasons, right? This whole idea like, oh, the Raptors can be really flexible. They didn't trade Lowry in the 2020-21 season. And I know that was a weird year with COVID. They were playing in Tampa and all that, but they finished 27 and 45. They should have punted, right? They should have gotten something from Lowry for Lowry then. Instead, they had to wait to do a sign-in trade after the season, like when Lowry's ready for free agency. So you get Dragic back, who's never with the team, basically. And Precious Achua, that's it. You could have gotten more from Lowry if you actually traded him during that season, right? So that was another opportunity where they could have rebuilt. They didn't. Okay, what happens this past season? They didn't trade Fred Van Fleet, who's a free agent, at the deadline. Gary Trent Jr. is a free agent. They didn't trade him. And instead of actually moving on and realizing you weren't a good team, they actually doubled down and they gave up a first and two seconds to bring back Yaka Pirtle. And Jakob Pertl is an unrestricted free agent at the end of the season. And they didn't even get out of the play-in tournament, right? They got into the play-in, but they didn't get out of it. They're not even in the playoffs. So like this whole idea that the Raptors are a team that's willing to be flexible with the direction the organization is going, they're not. They're trying to be competitive, right? So clearly, this team wants to win. And that's where, for me, Ime makes perfect sense for them. Now, you have to, if you're Ime, believe in the talent, Siakam, whatever, if you're going to extend him or not. And Scotty Barnes is a nice young player. We all know that, even though he didn't have the second year that maybe people thought he was going to have. So if you look at Ime, 
One, Ime wants to go to a team that wants to win now. B, he gets to play the Celtics a lot, right? Like, they're in the division. That storyline would be so juicy. Like, can you imagine that? Ime coming back to the Garden, the Celtics taking on Toronto. And I thought Toronto, quite frankly, they underachieved for the talent level this past season. So Ime probably thinks, I mean, obviously, he's a very confident coach. He probably thinks he can get a lot more out of that team than Nick Nurse did, right? Even though Nick Nurse is a champion, right? But here's the element that scares me about this. So I do think Ime is going to end up with this Toronto job. When Woj comes out and says Ime is basically the favorite to get the job to begin with, he's going to get the job. He's going to end up in Toronto. That's how I feel. But here's the element that scares me, okay? And I know the Celtics just lost. We're talking about a tough loss tonight, and Jalen did not play particularly well. But the Jalen Brown element scares me here, right? Because if Jalen makes All-NBA, okay, this isn't a problem. You give him the Supermax, we're not dealing with this situation. But what if he doesn't, okay? And what if the Celtics have, and I don't think this will happen, but a bad loss to Philly, or they lose to Milwaukee and they look outclassed, right? And I'm not predicting either of those things are going to happen. I believe the Celtics are going back to the NBA Finals, but I'm just laying out the hypothetical for you here. We know Jalen loves Ime. Remember what he said to Logan Murdoch in that article from The Ringer. He said, I hope Ime's doing well. I haven't talked to him, but I hope he gets another chance coaching again. There were some conflictions on the information that was kind of going around and stuff like that. That has put some dirt on his name. It's a lot. It's very nuanced. So where you stood on this side or that side, they was going to find what was wrong from the coach that I advocated to bring here to Boston. I wanted to see him back on his feet here, no matter what it was. I don't think that's the wrong thing to feel. So that sounds like a guy that really likes Ime Adoka, right? Now, look, the Celtics... They're not going to give all the information to the players about what was going on from a legal perspective, right? They can't. But Jalen does feel bad for Ime Adoka. He literally said it, right? So if Jalen doesn't make an all-NBA team, Ime is going to smell blood in the water, okay? And you don't think that he's going to want to try to take Jalen Brown away from the Celtics? And Toronto's a really nice city. Jalen, you would have to think, would get more marketing opportunities there, right? I mean, you think about it. They're the only team in the country. And he would be the guy if he got traded to Toronto for that team. Rather than here, he's the number two guy in a small city. He goes to Toronto. He's going to be the guy. Ime could convince Jalen that he would be their guy, right? And you know what Ime could put out there? Well, Jalen, remember, they wanted to trade you for Kevin Durant. They would have if they could have come up with a deal. They would have traded you for Kevin Durant. That's what Ime and the Raptors could pitch to Jalen Brown. So the combination of Ime and Toronto and Jalen not making All-NBA That would frighten me. And like I said, I believe Jalen's going to make All-NBA. And if it ends up happening that way, it's easy. You just give him the Supermax. But this is something that I certainly did not factor in before Friday. That Ime could be the head coach of the Raptors, which it feels like it's going to happen. And Jalen Brown, if he doesn't make All-NBA, you kind of put the pieces together based on what Jalen has said about Ime. And we know most of the guys on the team loved Ime, right? And they can also sell him on the fact that, look, Vince Carter, I mean, this guy was a hero in Canada before it got ugly with that team. You think about Kyle Lowry, he's beloved there. Kawhi Leonard is beloved there. He was there for one season. So I would just be very, very worried because the other component is if he doesn't make All-NBA, the scar tissue of the trades, that starts to come back up, right? And there's no reason for Jalen to extend after this season if he doesn't make All-NBA just from a money perspective. It just makes no sense whatsoever. And if you think about where Toronto would be at, right, if it ends up that he doesn't get the Supermax and teams are sniffing around about Jalen, we see if Jalen, and look, Jalen 
remember he had a couple of he had the article with Logan. He had the article in the Times. He talked about the three way call he had to get on with Brad and with Jason Tatum. Right. And I, I don't want to bring up all these old wounds, but if he doesn't make all NBA, he may say, OK, maybe there is a different place for me to go. And maybe I do want to play with Ime. Maybe I do want to get my own team like all that stuff could certainly come back into the conversation again if he doesn't make this all NBA team. And what Toronto would have over all these other teams that would maybe, if Jalen wants to be traded, let's say the hypothetical is that, if that is the case, the advantage that Toronto has over all those other teams is they would probably look at it and say, well, we can sign him long term. Like, we're not worried about it. We've done it before with Kawhi Leonard, but now we have his old coach here. Like, we're confident if we get him here, he's going to sign. So that just today, when I saw Ime to Toronto or the fact that Ime Woj reporting that basically Ime is the favorite to go to Toronto. I just got worried. I got worried about Jalen Brown in Toronto. And I know this has been a tough day from a Celtics perspective, but that worries me. All right, a lot more to get into. We'll get into the bees next as they bounce back after their difficult game two loss. Spring is here and you can now get almost anything you need for your sunny days delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a well-groomed lawn delivered, but you can get a chicken parmesan delivered. A cabana? That's a no. But a banana? That's a yes. A nice tan? Sorry. Nope. But a box fan? Happily yes. A day of sunshine? No. A box of fine wines? Yes. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol in select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. All right, welcome back into Off the Pike. We'll get to the bees in just a second here, but we do have time for a couple of calls. That number is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. All right, who's up first? Hey, Brian, this is Jack from down on the Cape, and, you know, I'm watching the end of the Celtics game here. There's 30 seconds left, and I just have to say, you know, in a rant, this is one of the worst Missoula games I've ever seen. I mean, pulling in Grant and actually being productive was great, but then, you know, I, like you, you tweeted out, Hauser comes in and no Grant, and then there's a Hauser and Grant's no Jalen lineup because Jalen's in foul trouble. Uh, and there's an 18 to three run in the first half and Missoula doesn't call a timeout. We're, you know, playing Missoula ball in terms of shooting all these threes. It, it's just putting Derek White and, you know, Jalen in foul trouble. Perfect storm for us to lose the game, but really didn't seem like there was many adjustments, bad shot selections. Uh, it doesn't give me hope going into later rounds in this playoffs even though I know we'll, we'll eventually beat Atlanta. I'm just hoping for more of a sweep, but who knows? Uh, just not a great Missoula game. Thanks. All right, Jack, I'm completely with you on that for a couple of reasons. First of all, and I did tweet that out to the tweet you're talking about is I, I have no idea. It's mind numbing to me that Hauser has given you nothing in this series. And Grant Williams gets into the game <laughs> because of the foul trouble. And he's tremendous in the first half. And then in the third quarter, you go to Hauser over Grant. Now, Grant eventually came in, but why is that the case? Why is Hauser the choice over Grant? You literally saw Grant play exceptionally well in the first half of that game. Why are you going to Hauser over Grant? Like, you don't have to come in with the same idea of, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is what our rotation is prior to the game. You go with the flow, right? Like, the flow of that game was, hey, Grant Williams is a way better basketball player than Sam Hauser, right? He's a better player. 
So play Grant Williams, not Sam Hauser. And this is not supposed to be some big indictment on Hauser. Like, Hauser's had his chances in the series. He's not doing anything. He's had two scoreless games. So that means Grant Williams should be the guy getting those minutes. So that was aggravating to me. Yeah, the timeout thing, I know what you're talking about there when they were on the run. It just... And the three-point thing that you allude to, I mentioned this off the top. I I feel like, in a way, that had them playing. And look, I can't prove this, but I do feel like because they shot so well, they felt like they didn't have to give the necessary effort defensively, right? And that's an issue. Like, they just felt like they were going to shoot their way out of it. And they, to their credit, they almost did. I mean, Tatum hits that three late. It's 124-124. Who the hell knows what happens in the final 58 seconds? But unfortunately, of course, the Celtics... And Tatum in particular doesn't hit that shot. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how you lose a game where he hit 21 threes. I mean, they were hitting whatever they wanted. They just could not stop the Hawks defensively. All right, who's up next? Hey, Brian. Uh, Celtics fall to Atlanta in game three. Uh, as frustrating as it is and as winnable as that game was, uh, I think that we as Seas fans need to take a deep breath, uh, kind of let it pass. That is the Hawks' last breath. Uh, them taking a final swing. Seas played a good game offensively, bad game defensively, and just kind of need to come into the next game. And if we play, I think, at the same level offensively, and likely even at the same level defensively, Atlanta won't repeat that performance. Um, so uh, no need to freak out. Just stay um, the course, keep playing, and uh, we'll come up with a win. Hopefully Brooklyn can get us a, a, a game for – for Philly to have to play an extra game, so they're not waiting for us. But, um, yeah, uh, don't freak out. Keep playing, and uh, I think things are going to be all right. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. And look, as I said earlier, I still think the Celtics are going to win the series. I think they're way better than Atlanta and all that. But I will say this, like, I, to your point about if they play the same offensively, they'll win the next game. I, I agree with you on that, but on the defensive side, they cannot come with that lack of effort again. I Quite frankly, I thought Smart was the only guy that came with the necessary defensive effort in this game. So they have to be better defensively or else the Hawks are going to shred them again. I mean, the Hawks have good talent. I mean, they're just underachieved as a team. They've been like the 500 team all season long. They've underachieved as a team. But Murray's a good player. Trey Young, despite all the criticism I've had for him, he can score. Like we know that if he's going to get all these mismatches, he's certainly going to be able to put points up. So they have to come with a better effort defensively. And on the glass, like how many times are they going to give up these rebounds? So I would say like, yeah, I, I'm not freaking out, but I do think, and we're recording Friday night after the game, you got to be upset about this game. Like they should be up three nothing. This Atlanta team is not very good. As poorly as you played defensively, you still had an opportunity to almost win this game. So what if you just came with like a 75% effort defensively in this game instead of a 25% effort defensively in this game, maybe even lower than that, 15%, you wouldn't have won this game going away, but they didn't come with the necessary effort from a defensive perspective. So that's why it's upsetting. And the fact that we went through what we went through last year when they had all these bad losses in the postseason and they had to put extra mileage on themselves as they made that run to the NBA Finals, we saw what it does. It wears you down. And the Celtics have now given this Hawks team confidence and they did it unnecessarily so because... They just didn't play well at all defensively. They didn't play hard enough defensively. And that's the aggravating part about the whole situation from my perspective. All right. By the way, great job of the calls. Remember, make sure if you want to leave us a voicemail after the game on Sunday, certainly welcome to do so. That number is 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. That goes for the Bees games, too. If you want to leave a voicemail after the Bees playoff game, certainly welcome to do so as well. So I thought the Bruins 
it was an outstanding win for them, right? Especially everything that has transpired with the injuries and all that different type of stuff. Krejci, we mentioned, he was a late scratch. I thought Orloff was really good in this game. He had the nice tape-to-tape pass to feed Hall. Hall finishes, makes it a one-to-nothing game. And I did think we saw some of the issues in terms of the goaltending with Lyon in this game, where eventually they put Bobrovsky in late in this game. But he was screened, but that's probably a save that he should have made. But I thought that was big for the Bruins to get on the board first. And if you look at it, I did feel like in that first period, I was still kind of worried about where they were from an offensive perspective, because if you look at it, they had zero high danger chances to Florida, who had two. And if you look at the shots, it was 5-5. I just felt like, yeah, they had the one nothing lead, but I did sort of feel like worried that Florida was going to be the team that comes out with the win because I did not love the way that the Bruins were playing. And then the second period, the Bruins just come out flying. And look, give Montgomery credit. Like he had to do a bunch of stuff with the line combinations and change different things up. But I thought Coyle, who was outstanding, I felt in this game, he wins a faceoff in the offensive zone. And then Marchand puts one on the net deflection goal for Coyle. I just feel like Coyle's had so many big playoff moments for this team going back to 19. And You look at him tonight, he was awesome. I mean, five shots on goal, second most on the team. And he just is a really nice player for the playoffs, right? Because he's big, he's strong on the puck, and I just feel like he's a guy that you want out there. And you really feel his value value rather more so in the postseason than you do during the regular season. And just when you're dealing with these injuries to Bergeron and Krejci, And now he goes from being, what, your third line center to having to play a more important role offensively. And all season long, he's been so great defensively, where he's been the guy that's been the center on the shutdown line. And tonight you need more from him offensively, and he's right there to deliver. I thought they had another chance where, in that second period where they were flying around, where they had pasta wide open, right, on a breakaway opportunity, but Hall could not get him the puck. He didn't feel the pressure coming from behind, but that was another opportunity they had, but it just felt like they were putting the pressure on them. And then you had basically after that second period, five on five play, they dominated 11 to three in shots, nine to 10 in the Corsi rating in terms of block shots, missed shots and shots on goal, five high danger chances to three. So it felt like in the second period, all right, the Bruins are cooking with gasoline. They're playing really well here. And then in the third period, pasta scores. And again, a nice feed from Orlov tape to tape again, you make it three to nothing. And that's what I felt like was really important about this game is they got Poster going, right? Pasternak in this game, seven shots, which was huge because if you look at the first two games, just four total, and it just felt like we saw some of the different combinations in terms of the line, but that Bertuzzi, Krejci, Pasta line, which of course, Krejci didn't even play tonight. He was a late scratch, but that had to be split up. That line was horrendous. You look at it in terms of the shot attempts in the first two games, 31 to 14, they were outshot, okay? So they were just spending way too much time in their own end, and you look at it throughout the season, and look, Bertuzzi came over late, but the Bertuzzi-Zaka-Pasternak line, they had played just 74 minutes together, but they outshot opponents 86-64. They outscored opponents 7-4. If you look at the goals per 60, it was 5.69 to 3.25, so more than a two-goal advantage per 60 minutes. So I felt like, okay, getting Zaka back with Pasternak and putting him with Bertuzzi, that probably is a better fit going forward than the fit with Krejci, even though the check line has been really good all season long. It just feels like that was a better fit, and we saw Pasta more aggressive. To me, this is by far the best game that, and I know he scored in game one, but this is by far the best game that Pasternak has had in the series. He was really good. 
Orloff, we mentioned, he was tremendous in this game. The two assists, really good playmaker. And then, how about Felino scores in a beautiful feed from Hall to make it 4 to nothing? And I thought he had been really bad the first few games, and he wasn't even supposed to factor in until Krejci is the late scratch. But he was really good in this game. Best in the team in terms of the Corsi rating when he was on the ice, 13 to 5, so north of 76%. He was on the ice for, of course, two goals, of course. Six to one in shots when he was on the ice. He was just really good in this game overall. Like, I, I was shocked to see Felino have this type of effort. And maybe part of it was he realized that he wasn't going to be part of it. And then all of a sudden, Krejci scratched. So maybe he's got a looser mentality entering this game. And he just played really well. Like, I give Felino a lot of credit. I thought he played like shit the first two games. And for him to play the way that he did in this one, that was outstanding. So the other thing is, again, the Bruins have been really good in the penalty kill. They killed off two penalties tonight. So now in the series... Florida is 0 for 7, okay? And if you look at it in terms of the season, they've been a pretty good power play, 10th in the NHL, but that's the last thing you want to have happen in a series against a team that has a ton of talent from an offensive perspective. You don't want to see them get going, right? So that was big to me that, again, they continue to kill off these penalties. Oh, one other thing I wanted to mention briefly here is just the situation with Bergeron. So Montgomery said prior to Game 5 that he didn't make the trip to Florida, of course, And we all know he got injured in the regular season finale. Now, he did say that he's hoping that he'll be ready to go. It seems like he's going to be likely to go in game five. Knock on wood, that's actually the case. But that's what Montgomery said. But he was asked on Friday if he regrets playing Bergeron in that season finale against Montreal. He said, our hindsight is we don't have any reservations about what we did because we laid it out where we were in the regular season with four weeks left to play. We talked to the sports science people and then Sweeney's, of course, talking about Don Sweeney. And I talked about it. We have a chance to rest people. We're going to rest them. And then we consulted with Berge, and I think he missed five games. It was actually four. But he goes on to say, we wanted, I wanted, and Berge wanted the last two games to ramp up to get in rhythm for the playoffs. Life happens. Unfortunately, he tweaked something in that last game. Even with hindsight, we would still do it exactly the same way. Now we have to move forward when you have no regret with what you did because it's well thought out plan. Okay, so this is the thing about this whole situation, because obviously this is a big talking point here. They actually did a study about what teams have done in the past, right? And they decided that playing the last two games is what was best for the guys entering the postseason, right? Because they didn't want to be sloppy. They didn't want to be not crisp, right? Things along those lines. Now, there's also a report that Bergeron's parents were at that game in Montreal, of course, and there's also a report that his father is battling cancer, so he wanted to play in front of his parents. Okay, so if you look at it, what they're saying is actually true, right? He didn't play against Pittsburgh on the first. He didn't play against St. Louis on the second. Then he played against Toronto and Jersey, but he sat out against Philly, and then he played against Washington and Montreal. So what happens if that injury is against the Devils or the Leafs? Are we still having this conversation? So I think it's unfortunate that it happened in the final game of the season. And you can say, well, he didn't need the tune-up in Montreal. But are you going to be the person that tells Bergeron, hey, you're not playing in front of your family in Montreal? And especially considering this was part of the plan, right? He wasn't just playing in Montreal because his family was there. He was playing in Montreal because they went through this whole plan with four weeks left in the season with the sports science people when they knew they were going to win the President's Cup, when they knew they were going to be the number one overall seat. They knew that they needed to come up with a plan down the stretch where they could rest guys, but also make sure 
when they got into the postseason, they were going to be crisps and they were going to be good. So unfortunately, he ends up getting hurt in the last game of the season. So I understand why Bruins fans are upset. Like it's a bad look. Now you can argue whether or not the plan worked, right? Like the Bruins did not look great in game one. And of course they lost in game two, but And you can also, if you disagree with the sports science people, you can say, oh, that's actually the wrong way to do it. You should have played the four games prior or you should have played down the stretch and sat out the last two, right? Like you can have your own thought on this, but I just, I look at this and it's not because he wanted to play in front of his family and it's not because the Bruins were going for the record, right? The Bruins are resting guys the whole time when they're going for the record. So I just feel like I can't really criticize them for him getting injured in the final game of the season. Now, if it was me, I would have done it differently. Like I would have said, hey, the last couple of games of the season, we got things wrapped up. I'm not playing my guys late. But obviously, like this is a strategic plan by not only the front office, not only the coaching staff, but the sports science people as well. So if you disagree with their logic behind it, that's fine. But I just wouldn't look at it and say, oh, yeah, this is stupid. I don't know why he played in the final game of the season, because this easily could have happened against New Jersey when they already clinched everything as well. This easily could have happened against Toronto when they had clinched everything. It's just unfortunate, the timing of it. So I understand why the Bruins are getting a lot of criticism for it, but I'm not going to criticize them for this decision, even if I, quite frankly, disagree with the logic behind it. It isn't like hey, he just wanted to play in front of his family. And hey, somebody should have told them that, hey, this is not going to work out long term in terms of this is a bad idea to play late. This is what they thought. They actually thought that was the right idea. And they played, besides the guys that were actually hurt, like Krejci, they played the guys late. They played their guys late because that's what they thought was best for the team. So unfortunately, they just got burned for that. Now, oh, I did want to mention this. We hit our same game parlay that we had up on Twitter today. So it was plus 341. Bruins money line, of course they won. Pasta anytime goal scorer, he scored. First period, the Bruins needed to score a goal. They did that. And over three and a half goals in the night, of course, they had four. So that was big. We hit our same game parlay, baby. We've missed a couple, but hey, we've hit a couple as well. One thing I did want to mention, unrelated to the Bruins or the Celtics before we leave, is I do have to hit this NFL story. Matt Patricia is taking a job as a senior defensive assistant with the Eagles. And at this point... (laughs) There just wasn't a spot for him on the Patriots, right? On defense, you have Gerard Mayo, who could very easily be the next head coach, and you have Steve Belichick, right? Like, you have good defensive minds, right? Not to mention the head coach is a defensive coach as well. So, okay, there was going to be no role there because he's not stepping over Mayo or stepping over Steve Belichick. And on the offensive side of things, you want to know part of him, right? You have Bill O'Brien calling plays, and you brought in Adrian Clem to coach the offensive line. Because the offensive line was a disaster that was coached by Patricia last year. That's why Clem's here. Okay, so what was he going to do here? Just go back to the role that he previously had in terms of like, we knew that his name was on some contracts. He was basically just like an assistant to Bill, right? So I got to say this, like during the season, as you all know, if you listen to the pod, I was pissed off with how bad the play calling was. How could you not be? But at some point, my aggravation went away from Patricia and went at Bill, right? Because Bill's the one that made this decision to make a guy the offensive play caller that has never done it before, right? And I actually feel bad for Matt Patricia, right? What's he going to say? Hey, Bill, uh, I don't want to call the offensive plays. Like Bill brought it back to the team and he said, hey, Matt, I need you to call plays. He's a yes man. He's obviously going to say yes. But And we know they're buddies, like Bill and Patricia are buddies. And if I was Patricia, I'd kind of be mad at Bill. Like, man, You sent me up to fail, and now I can't even stay with the team. Like, I got to go to the Eagles, and look, good for him, landing on his feet and all that. I have nothing against Matt Patricia personally. I don't really know. I don't know the guy personally, right? 
But I would just be like, if that was my friend and I was working for my friend and my friend put me in a position to fail, I would be fucking pissed off at my friend. So if I was Patricia, I would be mad at Bill Belichick right now. And unfortunately, I mean, what's Patricia going to do? And look, hopefully everything goes well for him in Philadelphia. I wish him no ill will whatsoever. I don't blame him at all for being a failure as an offensive coordinator, because you know why? We all thought he was going to be a failure because he had not done the job before. That whole situation was on Belichick. So I just want to touch that story before we leave. All right. As always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. You can email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. So if you want to send us a voicemail or leave us an email after the Bruins game on Sunday or after the Celtics game on Sunday, certainly welcome to do so. So we'll be back with you on Sunday. We're going to have Drew Bloodsoe as well. Fun conversation with Drew Bloodsoe. We'll, so we'll talk with Drew. We'll recap the Celtics. We'll get into the Bruins as well. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudi for producing this podcast, and we'll talk to you guys on Sunday.